0: Let's hear God's word, Judges chapter 17, beginning with verse 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as priest. In those days... There was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtael, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, Go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. While they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, "'Who brought you here? "'What are you doing in this place? "'What do you have here?' He said to them, "'Thus and so Micah did for me. "'He has hired me, and I have become his priest.' So they said to him, "'Please inquire of God that we may know "'whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous.' And the priest said to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. And then we're going to skip over the part where they went and found Laish and went back and gave a good report of that to the rest of the tribe and motivated some people to set out on this conquest. Instead, we're going to jump down to verse 13. Now this whole group of Danites, including the spies, are traveling northward. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The six hundred men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up, entering there. They took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? So the priest's heart was glad, and he took the the household idols and the carved image and took his place among the people. And then follows a confrontation with Micah, and eventually they send Micah away empty-handed. They reach the city of Laish, they conquer it, they rename it. And then in verse 30, Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Judges 18. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us now. Help us in the consideration of this portion of your word. Lord, we do need help to understand, to appreciate the lessons that arise from this narrative. But even more than help understanding, we need help receiving. We need help examining our own hearts, Lord, so that instead of taking the burden of this passage and applying it to others, we would apply it to ourselves. O oh, Lord, in warning, And in encouragement, speak to us from your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to look at this story from the standpoint of the Levite, it maybe bears pointing out explicitly, there are no good guys in this story. This is a story that could be made for TV in our current climate, where morally ambiguous characters are all the rage. There is all kinds of moral ambiguity going on here. Nobody is good. And if we're going to ask the question, well, who's worse? Who's the worst of all? We may have some difficulty coming up with a clear ranking. Everyone has their own faults. Micah is a superstitious thief. The Danites are aggressive bullies. And this Levite for hire, well... You'll see what we have to say about him, what the passage has to say about him. Now, he basically appears in the three episodes that we read. First of all, we find out that he was from Bethlehem in Judah. He's from the city of David, of course, before David was born. It wasn't called that. He was a Levite. Now, we'll find out more about him later, but this is how he's introduced. A young man from Bethlehem, a Levite. And he went away from Bethlehem because he was looking for a place somewhere else. For whatever reason, competition was too stiff in Bethlehem for him to really feel like he was getting ahead in life. Now, of course, you remember the Levites had a little bit of a different situation than everybody else. Everybody else, at least in theory, received inherited land. And they had that land giving them at least the potential of cultivating it and of building up their wealth in that way. If not building up wealth, at least eking out a living. But the Levites didn't have that. The Levites did not inherit land, and so they had a little bit of a more unsettled condition in Israel. Their roots did not go as deep into the soil at any rate. So what he did in moving away from Bethlehem was not necessarily wrong. It was very understandable at the very least. Well, he came up to where Micah was. They struck up an acquaintance and he wound up settling down with Micah. There's, in terms of sermons, there's a famous sermon on this passage by a gentleman named Paris Reedhead called Ten Shekels and a Shirt. If you're interested, you can look it up on Sermon Audio and you can be encouraged, you can be admonished. It's a very fiery sermon, shall we say. Ten shekels on a shirt. I'm not going to preach that sermon, but the gentleman there does make some very good points. He receives a warm welcome with Micah, and he's content to settle down there. He's supposed to be like a father to Micah, spiritually speaking, guiding his worship, teaching him the ways of the Lord. In fact, he becomes like a son to Micah. He's well-treated. He's taken good care of where he is. He has nothing to complain about. He's given a decent annual salary. I don't know if we can say it's more than decent, but it's at least decent. His meals are taken care of. He has a place to live. He has clothing. He has something to do, and he's given a position of prominence. So you could say that he gets a warm welcome. Of course, he's supposed to use Micah's religious paraphernalia. He's supposed to minister using Micah's worship dummies, the ephod, which that was a little questionable because the true priests were clothed with an ephod, but that had been made by divine design, and there was supposed to be some exclusivity to it. But then the teraphim, the household idols, the carved, the graven image, well, there's no excuse for those. Those are not mandated by God. By God! In fact, those are ruled out by God. Of course, you also have the whole problem, being a Levite didn't make you a priest. You had to be from Aaron, descended from Aaron's part of the Levitical family in order to really qualify as a priest. But he's not going to strain out that little gnat when he's <laughs> swallowing the camel of idol worship. So he goes all in. And for a time... They live peaceably enough. And when the Danites come by, they consult him. He says that the Lord blesses and prospers their way. You can see him doing the work of a priest, at least according to the conception of that time or of that place. You know, I shouldn't even really say of that time and place because this idea is still present with us. And the idea is basically this. God is around in order to help us get our own way. We emphasized that before. I don't want to go over that in detail again today, but you don't understand the story if you don't see that part of it. What does Micah want a priest for? He says, now the Lord will bless me because I have a Levite to be my priest. This guy's special. This guy comes from the right tribe. This guy's hot stuff. He knows what he's doing. Now I'm going to be blessed. Well, when the Danites come by, what do they want? Is our journey prosperous? Tell us how things are going to go. Consult the Lord and gain access for us to secret knowledge that we can't have without you. But what are they doing? They are trying to harness God in service of their own agenda. Not to put too fine a point on it, they're treating God as a really powerful mule. And that's what we do when we lapse into idolatry. That's what we do when we think that God is around to help us accomplish our own agenda. That can happen in the church, where we have our program, we have our vision, we have this, we have that. We set up a goal, we set up a... We need to find out what God's plan is and follow that. That's the real goal. That needs to be the agenda. If I have an agenda and it doesn't line up with God's agenda, well, it's better for me for my agenda to fail, to be crippled, to fall apart. The only agenda we should be concerned about as a church is thy kingdom come. But we can also do that in our personal lives. We have our dreams, we have our ambitions, we have our things we want to do, and we'll try to recruit God to help us accomplish that. That's not serving the Lord. We saw this in our Sunday school from Philippians. Timothy did not seek his own. Christ did not seek his own. Paul did not seek his own. Epaphroditus did not seek his own. The attitude of the true Christian is not, how can I use God to help me get what I want? It's speak, Lord, for your servant hears. As Samuel said, it's here am I, Lord, send me, as Isaiah said. It's, Lord, what will you have me to do? As Paul said, that's the attitude. And that's something we should check our hearts on. What is our relationship to God? Is it, okay, I'm going to deal with God because he can really help me get ahead or he can really be an obstacle? Or is it, speak, Lord. Send me. What would you have me to do? If it's not that second part, then we need to repent. We need To repent for trying to impose our own agenda on God. Micah needed to repent. The Levite needed to repent. Now, the Levite is a religious professional. So, of course, anything I say about him, you're very welcome to take and apply to me. I'm also a religious professional, right? This is how I make my living, is by being a pastor, I don't mean to be a hypocrite. I don't mean to exempt myself. If I say something that is critical of the Levite and you think the same criticism applies to me, I invite you to come and tell me that because I don't want to do that. But I'm also a sinner and I can lapse into things that are inappropriate. I can lose my way. I can forget what I'm supposed to be doing and get distracted with this, that, and the other thing. So this is an open invitation If you see me reflected in the Levite, let me know. Well, the Levite is content to settle down. This is okay. But when the Danites come back through and they offer him, hey, you could be the priest of a whole tribe. You really want to waste your life ministering to one family when you could be helping a whole tribe? Well, then it says not just that he was content to dwell. His heart was glad. But I want you to think about the cost here for a moment. When he sees them stealing Micah's worship paraphernalia, he says, What are you doing? And they say, Be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth. What is their idea of a priest? Well, their idea of a priest is somebody who helps them to get God's blessing. But notice what it is not it is not somebody who says, What you're doing is wrong. It's not that, because they told him, You be quiet. You close your mouth. You better not speak to us. Now, this Levite accepted the call on those terms. So if he had a hard time with that later on, well, that's, that's his fault. He signed up for it. But that is no way to treat your religious professional. In that context, it was a priest. In our context, it's a pastor. If the pastor is not allowed to point out sin... Okay, then the congregation needs to change. Now, the pastor needs to point out sin, whether there's going to be consequences for it or not. Are there going to be hurt feelings? Might giving dip? Might people leave the church? Well, yeah, all of those things do happen and have happened. Might the pastor get fired? Yes, that also happens. Might you find yourself out on your ear without a way to make a living? Yes. If you're in it, for yourself, if you're like this Levite, I need a place for me. Well, then, you'll trim your sails. You'll hold your tongue. You won't speak up about crying abuses. But if you're in it for the money, what are you thinking? <laughs> Find a different line of work. Pastors ought to rebuke. Paul says that to Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all authority and teaching. Now, he calls on Timothy to be long-suffering. He calls on him to be gentle. He tells him not to fight, not to strive. But he also says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all authority and doctrine. Now, the doctrine part is teaching. You're explaining. You can't just say, that's wrong. You got to cut that out. You have to tell people why it's wrong. You have to go into detail. You have to show them from scripture because your conscience is not bound to my word. If you're a Christian, your conscience is bound to the word of God. And so you do need to be shown out of scripture why this or that or the other thing is wrong. But the call is there. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. If I don't reprove, if I don't rebuke, if I don't exhort, then what am I doing? Well, I'm not being faithful to my calling. And even if that's more comfortable for the congregation, it's not better for them. It's not good for you to have a pastor whom you can control. Now, I'm not saying pastors should be loose canons. I'm not saying they should be authoritarian demagogues. There's a reason we have a plurality of elders. There's a reason we have a spiritual council and a consistory so that there are people who are thinking about these things, who are committed to these things, who can say to the pastor, this was wrong, that was wrong. Who can say, that was not clear at all. You need to revisit that issue and you need to think about your language because nobody got what you were trying to say. There's a need for all of that. When I say that pastors should not be controlled, I don't mean that they're just do whatever pops into their head. But I do mean that they need to be people of enough conviction that they can stand up to the biggest donor in the church. That they can resist a popular idea that is biblically wrong. That they can push back graciously, biblically, patiently, but firmly. Now, we don't always want that, of course. In our flesh, we want a pastor who does whatever we want him to do. And, of course, pastors in their flesh want congregations who don't give them any trouble. It's a two-way street. I'm not denying that for a second. But what do we need? What has God called upon us to be? If for the promise of more money, a bigger congregation, a wider sphere of influence or whatever, I accept but I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to say what the Bible says about that. What am I? I'm a mercenary. You want to put it even stronger? I'm a spiritual prostitute. Is that blunt enough? Is that clear enough? If you change what the word of God says in order to appeal to somebody, in order not to offend somebody, At that point, you're no longer the servant of God. Paul says it. He says, if I pleased men, I would not be the servant of Christ. He puts that opposition, that absolutely. If I am people-pleasing, I am not serving Christ. Well, this Levite was willing to make that bargain. He was willing to people-please in order to get a better job, in order to have that major promotion. And in one sense, you could say it worked out for him. He and his descendants continued to minister at this northern shrine that was established in the newly renamed city of Dan. And this is where the author of Judges chooses to finally tell us this young Levite's name. The children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And here's his name, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. Now, we've got to stop there for a second. In Hebrew Bibles, when you see the name Manasseh printed here in Judges 18, the Nun, the letter that stands for the N in Manasseh, is printed above the line. If you read the Hebrew without that superscript Nun put in, the name that is there is Moses. And we happen to know that Gershom was the son of Moses. Now, there's a couple of theories as to why scribes might have started adding a superscripted nun to this part of God's word. They did it as a superscript, I think, so you would know this isn't original. Some people think they added it out of respect to Moses. They didn't want to say that this was Moses' grandson or great-grandson who was behaving this way. Other people think that it was added as an allusion to the godless king Manasseh from the southern kingdom of Judah, the worst king in many ways that Judah ever had. And so this was like a way to sideswipe him in passing. That theory is not as convincing to me, but just so you know what the theories are. However, none of Manasseh's children, none of the Manasseh who was the father of a tribe, none of his children were named Gershom. So that's very strong evidence that the way it was originally written down was, in fact, Moses. So who is this? Well, this is Moses' son or great-grandson, or grandson or great-grandson. Well, that has some important lessons, doesn't it? Lesson number one: the children of Moses were Levites, not. The priesthood went through Aaron. Even though Moses was unique, even though Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, even though Moses had a special position, that special position was not inheritable the way the ordinary priesthood was. Moses' children and offspring were regular Levites like the rest of the clan, except for the children of Aaron. Lesson number two, the greatest ancestor in the faith is not a guarantee that this generation will be godly at all. They may be religious professionals because religion is the family business, but that does not mean that they will be godly, committed, called individuals. You see that. Jonathan was not called. Jonathan was a mercenary. Jonathan was out to get what he could for himself And if he had to not tell people they were wrong, he could live with that. As long as it came with a promotion, that was okay. As long as there was a carrot as well as a stick, he could deal with that. What a paltry state for this people to be in. What a hideous choice the Danites made. What a waste of a godly heritage Jonathan had. Descended from Moses but just out for himself. Not a spark of the attitude of Moses to be found in this fellow. Well, there's some warnings there for us, aren't there? There's some warnings there for us about what is our religion like? Why are we Christians? Why do we come to church? Why do we pray? Why do we seek the Lord? Do we seek the Lord because we know we need his help to get on board with his agenda, or do we seek the Lord so he'll be on board with ours? It can be a subtle difference in how it shows up in practice, but it's a difference that makes all the difference. It's a huge difference in the heart. How do you approach your pastor? And I know this is a little awkward because I'm your pastor and I'm asking you this question. But do you want me not to rebuke? Do you want me not to reprove? Do you want me not to exhort? I don't think I can do that. On the other hand, pray for me, because that's not easy. It's not easy to go to somebody you like and value and trust. It's not easy to look to somebody who you think, boy, are they important to the church, and say, that was wrong. That's not easy. That costs you sleepless nights. That costs you an upset stomach. It's hard to make it to those appointments sometimes because you got to go out the door and it's like, oh man, my stomach is not letting me leave because your stomach is trying to avoid the hard thing. That happens too. So pray for me in that regard. Pray that I would reprove, rebuke, exhort with all authority and doctrine. Pray for me to be gentle. Pray for me to be kind. Pray for me to be patient. But pray for me To not back down one centimeter from what God's word says. And pray for me not to do that in my own life. Pray for me not to give myself a pass because I'm the pastor. That also happens. This is my whole life. I can afford a little indulgence here or there or something. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. But we need help to remember that. And don't just pray for me. Pray for all the pastors of the RCUS, of other Bible-believing churches, that we would be enabled to do our work and to do it well. But then finally, what a contrast between Jonathan, the son of Moses, and Jesus, the son of David. The son of David? The son of God had equality with God. He had all the position. He had all the power. He had legions of angels at his command. And what did he do? He laid it all aside in order to serve. Now, when Christ was on earth, when he was functioning in his prophetic ministry, preaching and teaching the kingdom of God, did he trim his sails in order not to make people mad? Oh, you know the answer to that. He said, I've chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil. That was pretty blunt, wasn't it? Like John the Baptist, serpents, vipers, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He let them have it. He told them. He said, you're seeking me not because you want eternal life, but because your bellies were filled with the loaves. He offended so many people that everybody started to abandon him in droves and he had to say to the disciples, are you also going to go away? He was the perfect prophet who trimmed his sails for no one at all, who purely spoke the word of God in its fullness, in its completeness. But he was also the one who did not seek his own. For your sake, he was delivered up. For your sake, he humbled or emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and then was even humbled to the death of the cross. Oh, he was not in it for what he could get. He was in it for what he could give. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he was made poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Just the opposite of Jonathan. Well, look to this Lord Jesus to forgive you for where you fall short, to help you to grow in seeking the Lord for his sake and not for your own agenda. Amen.